code to the semicolon. Small breaker and connector, beautiful ligament between the muscles of my thought. I crave that bit of silent music only you can offer. The way you wordlessly serenade my speech, impossible to resist the way you move. Tiny voyeur, I was once afraid of you because I did not understand you. You constantly present in enumeration. How many litanies have you attended? Splendid wink, clever eye. You are the keeper of the whole. You leave nothing unattended. You allow me to believe in continuity. You celebrate the cohesive. You are the break and the knot, the tear and the tie. Small link, resistor of my fragments. You give me a breath each time. Opener of spaces and fields of grammar. By what power do you move my tongue, my eyes, and measure my beats? Hello and welcome to episode 45 of Of Poetry Podcast. I'm your host, Han Vanderhart, and you've been listening to the poet Carla Sofia Ferreira read from her new book, A Geography That Does Not Hurt Us, out now from River River Books. Carla Sevilla Ferreira is a poet and teacher from Newark, New Jersey, author of the micro chapbook Ironbound Fados, Ghost City Press 2019. Her poetry and prose have appeared in The Rumpus, Glamour, Washington Square Review, December, Ecotheo Review, Underblong, OK Donkey, and Cotton Xenomorph, among others. A recipient of fellowships from the Sundress Academy for the Arts and Dreamyard Radical Poetry Consortium, Carla's poetry has received several nominations for the Pushcart Prize and Best of the Net. One of three students selected to write a creative thesis in poetry during her senior year at Harvard College, Ferreira holds graduate degrees in English and Education from the University of Cambridge and Stanford University, respectively. The daughter of Portuguese immigrants, her writing explores transit and transience, urban geographies and distance, tenderness and translation. Her work as an English teacher continues to inform and nourish her writing as a practice of community and care. Hello and welcome, Carla. Hi, Han. <laughs> it's so good to see you and to hear you read. Your voice is so incredibly soothing. Oh, <laughs> thank, thank you. It's so good to have you back on the show and to celebrate your new book and to see Moonshadow, your cat, in the background. <laughs> he left um, as soon as I began reading the poem, so I'm not really sure if he's the biggest supporter of my work, but I can definitely say that you have been as editor of River River, so I'll have to make do with the lack of support from Moonshadow in today's episode. <laughs> <laughs> Meowch. No, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'll be holding on to that one. <laughs> Uh, my nine, my nine-year-old. Be proud of me. 
Um, I'm so glad you opened by reading Ode to the Semicolon. It was beautiful to hear you read it and just little, really little things like hearing the, when you said tongue, like I could really hear the G, like I could really hear it. And I don't always, when, when people say that word, um, and I think too, that, you know, it's something it's the semicolon we think of so often with printed word and with text, but that you call it out in the poem in speech, I think is so mm. cool. Um, I crave that bit of silent music only you can offer the way you wordlessly serenade my speech. And I just was like, wow, how often do people think about semicolons in and like how your language is in the mm. air between people or um I think I, I do disproportionately, honestly. <laughs> I love I love that you were asking that question. I, I just recently finished teaching a lesson on semicolons and I do um I do love them, but I think my love of them does in fact stem from like a deep-rooted childhood fear of not understanding them. Um and so I think that's part of part of my love affair with semicolons is that, but also just um, the idea of how they signify both connection and silence at the same time. So that connect that connection between meanings of sentences, but also allowing for those thoughtful pauses in speech. Um, to me, that's just so it's so important to be able to have those moments of of pause to recognize moments of of distance and connection at the same time. So there's something there's something really beautiful about the semicolon and also, as you know, but I want to share with listeners, part of why I chose this poem, of course, was that you chose to read the ending of this at, at the NAWP reading the other night uh, for NOP. And it's a poem that I very rarely have read out loud. I've never read it, I think, at an open mic or a reading. And then hearing you read it, and it was just like, wow, this is supposed to be read out loud, actually. <laughs> In fact, the poem itself is calling to be read out loud and to have those moments of silence. And I think it's interesting, too, because I was definitely, this is a poem that I wrote probably a decade ago. I think this was during my creative thesis process in undergrad. And at that point in my writing life, I was thinking a lot more about how the poem looks on the page and less about how it sounds out loud. And so just as like a, a moment of internal critique too, as I was reading it, I was thinking, hmm, if I were to write this today, I'd probably be a little bit more focused on how I'm enjamming things. Cause it does look pretty, pretty neat on the page, but there are definitely moments as I read it, I noticed myself tripping. And so I don't know that I'd go back and revise it. It's obviously out in the world, but it is interesting to kind of think about those different poetic stages, whereas, you know, the 21-year-old version of myself was way more interested on the visuals of the poem. And I think now, um, <laughs> uh, a decade later plus, I'm thinking a lot about how poetry sounds in speech and air, um, which I think the content of the poem itself, interestingly enough, was also kind of foreshadowing um, but yeah, thank you for reading it the other night. It was so beautiful to hear that as you were reading your own really wonderful, gorgeous poems. Um, and so to have you read like a little snippet of mine from the book, just, it was, it was such a gift. And I mean, again, you have the most soothing, beautiful voice. So just to hear 
my poetry in your voice was definitely such a blessing. Oh, thank you for that. I have the four River River books that we've published the title so far very close to me in my office. And um, I pick them up a lot just to just to like read a, a poem in them just to read one. And I love that kind of focus and returning to the books. And when I opened yours before um, the NOP reading, and I'm really, I love the noun fields. And I love thinking about that in terms of knowledge, in terms of existential feelings, in terms of like landscape I grew up in. And so it's just, I think it's such a, um, it's such a generous word and that you have it in such a generous space, the opener of spaces and fields of grammar. Um, and I think, you know, it's one of those tricky punctuations that, yeah, it, it is more difficult to learn like what you do with it. And I always tell my students, like, it means that you've got, you know, you've got two independent clauses and you're joining them and, um, they are more intimately connected than with a period. Like you want to marry them. You like want to put them together, you know? I love that language too that you just use the idea of intimate connection because that is what I'm thinking about with semicolons. And that also you just described it as a marriage. I often describe it that way too as students. It's like, well, this is like an example of a healthy marriage when a semicolon brings together two sentences that could be independent, but they have decided to have this both distance and connection at the same time. Now, if you had a comma there, that is a toxic relationship. And that's how I teach comma splices. <laughs> um, so I really, I really love, um, I really love what you were just saying there about the idea of like intimate connection, because it's definitely that that is very much the space, the space in which I'm in uh, within this poem. So <laughs> I love that we have kind of parallel lesson plans too, just as a little teacher uh, pedagogy point. <laughs> yeah, no, that's amazing. That is how I'm going to teach comma splices now too. <laughs> I mean, it's it's cool because like comma splices are such an opportunity. It's like, do you want a conjunction? Do you want an M dash? Do you want like, what do you want to go? Like you can do anything there. Like what, I don't know. There's so much possibility in language and I think that's why sometimes I feel like I have like the most humble job in the world, but it's also the most exciting, like just, just working with students language, just in, in it's infinite. Like the variety is just infinite. And I know I've been even saying like the word variety too often, I feel like on the podcast, but I think it's, it's such pleasure in that. And there's such pleasure in newness and real living people use language in new ways all the time. Um, I think, too, what you're saying about language as possibility is so important, and especially as a teacher, thinking about grammar and how often grammar is policed, um, how often um, students are punished for not speaking, you know, quote unquote, correct English. And it's something that's it's like an issue that's really close to my heart as a former English language learner teacher, you know, uh, myself growing up speaking English and Portuguese. And so just kind of having like a general just sense of awareness of the ways in which grammar is often used to police identities, as opposed to it being like what I really am trying I'm aiming towards in this poem is like, what well, what does it mean to have fields of possibility? What does it mean for grammar to open things up, to be expressive? 
Um, and it's something I try to be really mindful of, right? Because when I'm doing my lesson on comma splices, it's like, okay, how how can I make sure that this is teaching and not policing? How do I make sure that I'm giving students the ability to construct like new worlds within their language within their writing as opposed to feeling as if they are like checking their identities at the door and so I mean it, it takes a lot of really like thoughtful and nuanced conversations throughout the semester um and my, I think my students just being very patient with me and my own little kind of ramblings on uh on grammar but giving them too also the ability to to question to push back and have their own possibilities come to the forefront. So really, I just wanted to pause there on you saying possibility. And you also mentioned the idea of pleasure, which I think too comes with like reading poetry out loud. It's why podcasts like this are so important, why open mics are so important. Um, it's something again, like looking at some of these early poems where so much of my poetry writing in undergrad was just me alone in my room <laughs> um, and not really being in community with other writers, um, which was really a shame in terms of my undergrad years. I wish I had had more of a writing community, um, but now kind of being more in community with writers and having the words said out loud, like that's such a pleasure too. And so like focusing on pleasure and possibility as opposed to, to limits. Um, within grammar and language. It's just so important. I think it's our work as poets, it's our work as teachers. And I think a lot about um, Wittgenstein saying, you know, a, a word's meaning is its use in the language, like how generous that is. It's like, well, how are people using it? Because if people are using it that way, then that is the word's meaning. And I love how anti-academy and anti-canon <laughs> That is in some ways, even though that's how canons get formed and that's how things get built. And um, I'd love to talk some about the ode because you have a number of odes in your book. And, you know, the spirit of Aracelis Kermai is very much around your work. And um, and also when I think about odes, I think about Ross Gay and I think about... Oh, Amy Nizukumatadal. And like, it's just like poets who work so beautifully with like gratitude and praise, who are also like, it's so clearly one of the forms of work they are engaged in, one of the labors. And um, they're not light poets. They're not, you know, they're not at all. There's no sense of like vapidness or unearnedness or whatever objection people have to the idea of praise, which is, um, and so I wanted to ask you about your thoughts on the work of praise, your thoughts on other work alongside, or if you wanted to talk about the kinds of different work that went into the making of a geography that does not hurt us, um, wherever you would like to take that question. That's such a beautiful question, um, because I think a lot about odes, and I'm so happy that you mentioned um Araceli Skirmai, because, um, well, first of all, anyone who reads this book will know, of course, that she's been, you know, a monumental influence. She was the first living poet that I ever read, um, like her, the full poetry collection of. Um, and so I was, I was 17 at the time, and it had a, like, really just tremendous impact on, on me as a writer. And the other writers, too, that you've mentioned, um, like Roske and Amy, like they've been um, such compasses in terms of their writing of praise and gratitude. Um, 
I think about what Adeseli's, so I, I took, I was really fortunate enough to take a workshop with Adeseli's years after I first read her. I was already a huge fangirl. Um, and I met her very briefly in undergrad. She was, of course, just this incredibly generous, wonderful spirit. And then I met her again at the uh, Radical Dream Yard Consortium. Um, and so she was running one of the workshops and it was in particular on odes. Um, I was so delighted. Um, and so one of the things she said about it was thinking about odes as what we owe, um, right? Odes as a, what is owed to one another. And that, that kind of reminds me of like the Gwendolyn Brooks poem, Paul Robeson, the idea of us being each other's harvest. Um, and what you were just saying now about the work of praise not being light work, um, I think that when we praise, when we offer gratitude, we acknowledge loss, we acknowledge what could be transient, um, we acknowledge what's not guaranteed, and also at the same time, again, what we owe, all of that kind of intermixed. And so for me, the process of writing odes feels so interlinked with elegy, which is another huge factor of the book is going between elegies and odes. I think about another poet who, um, whose work I've gotten into more recently within the past few years, but has also been like an incredible poet, incredible editor, and one of the blurbers for this book. Blurber is also a very pleasurable word to say, just side note. <laughs> um, but Roberto Carlos Garcia wrote this beautiful book of poems called Elegies, um, which I got a chance to do a book review of. And it was interesting writing that review because, again, as I was looking very closely at um, Garcia's work on the elegy, it seems so in interconnected with my own work on Ode. So not even so much like my work in elegy, but I was thinking about that in terms of elegy as a practice of gratitude as well. Um, and just really doing the work of witness within poetry. Because again, I think for for me, so much of what I write towards is understanding a sense of, of distance, of displacement. And so rather than just lamenting, which I do some of, <laughs> um, taking moments of, of gratitude, of joy. Um, I think about one of the things that I shared at the NOP reading, which I keep mentioning NOP. I want to, I want to give a shout out to the organizers who are incredible. Um, you know, Jared uh, Beloff and Mitch Novis, like they're doing amazing work with that. I think just having online accessible spaces, especially in the midst of an ongoing pandemic is so, so important. So I'm very grateful to them and all the work that they've been doing for NAWP. And so um, for the NOP reading back in January, I mentioned uh, that I grew up above a funeral home. <laughs> it comes up in a lot of my poems. Uh, that too was a huge formative influence on my poetry writing. Um, and one of the poems that I read um, was my empanadas poem, with a very long title in which I apologize to William Carlos Williams, another Jersey poet, because I, I steal some of his lines at the very end. Um, and the poem is about pleasure and it's like this is it's taking place the poem or rather not fully taking place the empanadas are from this corner store that's right down the street from the funeral home um in which i grew up and i would stop there um you know with my mom on the way to my k-8 through school and we get empanadas you know every other day for that would be my lunch um they were amazing and <laughs> i you know i kind of just lingered within that poem on the idea of pleasure 
and gratitude for joy. And I think um, the way that I described it within the NOP reading, I think it was a little bit more articulate and concise that night. But, you know, when you live above a funeral home, you know, since you were a baby, you are so acquainted with death and mortality. Like there's not an age in which I learned about death. I feel like I've just, <laughs> I knew about it forever that, you know, you lose the people you love. And I, you know, my parents had me when they were a bit older. And so I became very accustomed to just going to funerals at a young age. And I think that's actually where conversely or ironically, perhaps, a lot of the odes come from is this understanding that the people we love will not always be with us. So when they are, it's so important to express gratitude. Like to me, there's so many, um, <laughs> there's so many unhealthy coping mechanisms that I have as someone who's a deeply anxious person. But one thing that I do feel that I, I somehow do right, and I hope that I can teach, you know, to my students and and carry on to the other people who are, who matter to me in my life is just having a really robust and active practice of gratitude and not having it be, again, it's not light work. It's not just empty praise. Um, I'm someone who, like, I'm effusive in my compliments to people, but I make sure that they are always true. <laughs> um, like, I don't, I do not, I do not bullshit people. I will, you know, I think we talked about it in our last podcast episode four years ago. I, I try very hard to be kind and not nice um you know if i can be nice and kind simultaneously fine but um i will never be nice at the expense of being kind and so i think that also goes into my gratitude practice as well which leads back to the odes in terms of how do i how do i sing praise in a true way it feels like such vital work um there's so much more I want to say about it, but I do maybe want to redirect <laughs> to more uh, to before I get super philosophical to more questions about the poems themselves. Um, Han, thank you for asking that question. Um, for it's it's so um, it's so generous and and like really um, helps me think a little bit more deeply about my own poems and and what odes are doing in general. Well, first of all, it's impossible for you to get too philosophical on this podcast because this poet loves philosophy. So I am <laughs> so happy. I'm like, Good company. do it, do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I don't, I don't think, I don't know. I'm not sure if it's that I don't come to gratitude easily or if it's just really always really impresses me when it happens but just feeling like deeply grateful for someone or something that someone did I find it so grounding and it just it kind of it's such a perspective shift and um you know I, I'm not if I'm feeling really grateful I can't be so angry in a way that's like me being very wrapped up in myself kind of anger, not like a justice sense of anger. And actually, since you brought up Gurmai saying um, like, ode, what is ode? That blew my mind because, you know, like that's the meaning of the word justice is like, what is ode to one another? What is it? And so I was like, oh my God, that's so cool. Like <laughs> with an ode that, and like you said that it's like, something that you're giving in like truth to someone that it's not, it's not flattery. It's not like, it's not just a compliment. It's not that. And I do see it as like a kind of work. Um, 
and one that really changes you. And I think you're so right to connect it with elegy too and loss. And because like the more you lose, the more precious what you have. It's almost like sometimes I feel like people will get wrapped up in a cause and um, almost lose sight of like the thing that they love that they're trying to protect. And that's something for me that I find that very, as another fellow anxious person, I find it very grounding um, and worth the work. And it does take work and it takes time. And even just being grateful for your own body and taking time for yoga or whatever it is, a walk or drinking your water, like do that kindness takes work too. And so I just, I love to see that in a poetry collection and threaded throughout. And um, I mean, I, I think of my friend Benjamin Garcia and um, his book thrown in the throat, which, you know, he works with odes and he works with O's while being really this collection too. I just needed to interject briefly. I was like, Oh my gosh, Benjamin Garcia's thrown in the throat is extraordinary. And, and he's angry in the book too. And so he does like interplay the odes and the praise and the anger. Um, And I must be thinking about Ben a lot because this is the second time I've brought up his book on the podcast lately, but um, I think it's so interesting. Like it's, it's so, it teaches me so much. It's so beautiful. It shows like you can do anything you want in a book. Like what's your work? Where do you want to be? Um, and that does bring me to a question about place and belonging and displacement. And I just, you know, I think all of the collections from River River Books have an incredible sense of place and, um, that's something Amorak and I are really drawn to as the editors and like a poetry that knows where it belongs. Right. And it's a weird thing because you can like, you can rationally know you belong somewhere, but that can be hard to work out like the concrete particulars of, and, and you don't feel the same way every day. None of us do. So I'd love if there's a poem you think you'd like to read, or you want to say more, um, I just, wherever you want to go with this. Oh, and you've, you've asked the, the golden question, because as we were having, actually, it's really perfect the way that you segued into place um, and displacement, because I was thinking about a poem in particular in the collection that to me, I feel like is right at the intersection of elegy and ode. And then when you began discussing this idea of like poetry that knows its place, and like, I think for me, that's why River River we were just discussing this right before we started the podcast, but I do feel like I waited a long time for this book to get published and those years of revising, sending out to different presses that I had done my research on. And then I feel like the, the book was waiting for River River to exist um, because it is really in so many ways such a perfect press um, with editors like yourself and MRAC who are just so incredibly helpful, but also just thinking about like how these four opening collections. I haven't gotten a chance to read Rachel's yet. I'm going to get it at AWP, so I'm very excited, but I've read poems from it. Um, All of our work, you know, really does have that sense of location and geography and understanding um, a sense of belonging, right? Or like whether it's architectural or just an urban landscape or it's just, it's been really, it's nice to find that like the book has found its home within that. And so as you were talking about that, the poem that came to mind um, and thinking about elegy, 
meeting ode. I think this is a poem that is both at once and also is a poem that's deeply rooted in place. Um, I don't think I read it during our last podcast episode, but you know what? I might go back and re-listen and watch that I did, um, but it is St. Lucy's. Um, this is an interesting poem, too, because of the title. So there were actually two schools named St. Lucy's in Newark, both of which were shut down. So every once in a while, I will get folks who are from Newark and will say, oh, that's the St. Lucy's near there. And it's like, oh, no, actually, this was another St. Lucy's, um, which is also just kind of heartbreaking. Um, this was kind of a formative childhood event in terms of learning about loss. Um, St. Lucy's was, you know, a small Catholic school, um, lots of, you know, immigrant families um, who went there and, you know, it was it was a community school. It was very small and the Archdiocese of Newark uh, decided to close it down because it was not bringing in enough money, essentially. And I remember, <laughs> I remember being really outraged as a child and you know, going to the meeting and speaking up against it, you know, and I, I was always very anxious as a kid too. So just kind of like shaking as I was speaking. Um, and the representative there who had never stepped into our school before shutting it down was like, oh, you know, you'll get over it. Children are resilient. <laughs> it was just like, it was like, I guess, I guess we are resilient. I guess we write about it in poetry collections like a decade later. Um, <laughs> so that's what resilience looks like, I suppose. Um, you know, and so this poem, St. Lucy's, it is a Nork poem. It's an ironbound poem. It's a poem that's an elegy and an ode at once. And it's about place, but it's also about displacement. So that's probably the most preface I've ever given to a poem before reading. So I'm going to go right into it. St. Lucy's. To be granted grace in midwinter by the softness of sunlight breaking through the smooth network of tentative leaves in the small space made intimate by benches and shrubs, by its young trees whose hope rests in tightly closed buds as water breaks from the pipes that crawl the brick building is to almost forget the empty playground. The playground of concrete and gravel and parking spaces exists almost beyond notice, the flow of water, a breaking of the ice upon the pale orange wall, seeping into pebbled earth, streaming into eroded bricks as they lie, blesses the children's laughter no longer there, teaching the will to stay and the will to break. And so that's that's a poem that came out of deep loss, um, but also deep gratitude, you know, for what that school was as a community space. Still still friends with many, many of my classmates and the nun, Sister Mary Rose, who used to run the school. I still keep in touch with her. And um, you know, it was it was a loss and 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 it's and a loss that's like not uncommon, right? That it's this big kind of soulless 
institution that is the Catholic Church, <laughs> um, you know, ultimately squashing this this community center because it wasn't turning over enough profit, which is, you know, really absurd um, because, as we all know, the church has a ridiculous amount of money and all of it should be going to social services. Um, <laughs> so, um you know, it's a, it's a poem that also, it's interesting because I've been told by several friends who are brilliant poets that I, um, that I struggle to express anger in my poems and they're not wrong, but this also is a really angry poem for me. And so it's interesting too, the ways in which, you know, there's perhaps a restraint to my anger within my poems that I'm, I'm curious now as I work towards the second book, what will it look like for my poems to get angrier on the page but for this poem it's really it's really about how do I hold loss and gratitude how do I hold like the will to stay and the will to break at once and then there's that there's that notice which if you read the book the poem the book starts with um that very short poem notice at the beginning and so it is kind of a callback to that as well thinking about part of why I have like that first page of the book that is blank with the poem at the very end. It's meant to kind of represent the blank page also as like the tree that's been cut down and turned into paper. So like the process of loss there as well. Yes, Moonshadow, he too is grieving. <laughs> I'm not sure if you heard Moonshadow just meow in response to that. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I I do think it's a poem that kind of touches upon, St. Lucy's is a poem that kind of touches upon so many of those elegy and ode questions within the book, and then also questions of geography versus what does it mean to, to lose home within the place that you knew? The St. Lucy's title, um, is it, are you also referencing St. Lucy's Day at all? Because I think of the John Donne poem, the nocturne, um, a nocturnal upon St. Lucy's Day being the shortest day. Um, and, I and love that and I want to steal it. <laughs> I do think it's maybe one of those poetry serendipity moments. I wasn't thinking, I, I do want to be honest, I wasn't thinking of St. Lucy's Day, but hey. You know, my dream is that one day a high school student will write a close reading analysis of this poem and I'm giving them permission right now. You're getting it straight from the poet's mouth. You're allowed to close read it whatever way you'd like. So if they want to include that reference 100%, but no, actually, I, I don't know about that, Han, and I'd be fascinated to hear you say some more about it. And actually, because it's like Groundhog Day, I was just thinking about like, well, that's one of the things I miss about being on Twitter is that there's always some early modernist who's going to drop Dunn's Nocturne upon St. Lucy's Day on St. Lucy's Day. It's like the one poem they know. And she, <laughs> that was so mean. I'm a bad person. Um, you're not, like, <laughs> you are not a bad person. Although, to be fair, Twitter made us all worse people. This is and true. yet we found each other. I feel like that's how I describe the era of poetry Twitter, which like R.I.P., um, but um, I feel like it made me a worse person for the time. And I met some of the kindest people on there. Like it was such a dumpster fire of a place, like truly thriving dumpster fire. But I met extraordinarily kind and thoughtful and brilliant poets like yourself. I mean, so many. I don't want to start naming because I know that it's going to be like my acknowledgement section all over again, which I 
I swear was the hardest part of the book to write. <laughs> Just like I'm missing someone. But yeah, so yeah, I do I do miss part aspects of poetry Twitter, including people sharing. It's 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 a loss of a space too, speaking of displacement. Like I I do feel a sense of loss in the sense of wow. There used to be communities and literary magazines and different poets and poems that I never would have met without that space. I don't think I would have gotten my chap, my micro chap published without poetry Twitter, because that's how I discovered Ghost City Press. It was not something I learned about in an academic setting. It was very much community based. Um, I'm so sorry. I took this from like a lighthearted joke into a very serious, <laughs> very serious elegy for, you know, poetry Twitter, which most of my time there, I spent so conflicted about being in a space, which I do think on many occasions brought out the very worst in me. But you are delightful, Han. You don't get to say that you're like a bad person because of poetry Twitter, because you were always such a sweetheart and so kind in the midst of so many terrible people. So it is, I think, you know, you're expressing a real loss that a lot of people are feeling. And, you know, it breaks my heart when people are on blue sky or they're at wherever and they're expressing the fact that like they're lonely and that that's like so necessary a part of writing is that we not feel lonely and that we feel like we have someone else to speak with and someone who understands what we love and the things we're angry about. And, um, you know, I think your acknowledgements page is a wonderful example. You know, I think of, someone like Ross Gay, who I think it's in Beholding, he has this huge acknowledgement section, which I just love. And it's like, let me acknowledge how this book came to be. And to all these people who I owe things to, like that, you know, I think there is a temptation that sometimes writers feel like they did it all by themselves and look at this. And actually, like when you look, it's community that brings your book into being. And so having that, um, like, I love, I love your acknowledgement section. Um, and you were so kind to say that given how, speaking of a terrible person, what a terrible person I was sending you and Amrak. Okay. This is it. This is the final version. I must've sent you like three different <laughs> versions. It's like, okay, I promise you I'm done. I'm done now. And I do remember being like very grateful that I had both of you holding my hands as like first time this being the debut and me not really knowing what I was doing um so that is exceptionally kind of you to say that you love it because I I do want listeners to know the labor that went into it on the part of my editors who were very patient with me uh, as I got multiple revisions and you know the thing the thing about it too is like now looking at it I'm like well I'm very grateful that I was able to to edit it as I did um and still still there were parts where I was like oh I missed that person <laughs> I should I'm that's why that's why it has a you know kind of a cheeky caesura section because I know for sure already the other day a friend reached out to me who pre-ordered the book and I had forgotten to mention them in the acknowledgement section. I was like, you know what? That's what the Caesura is for. So there's a little, there's a little blank space. It's not, you know, those those of you who are like really technical poets, you'll be like, that's not a Caesura. Well, whatever. It's a blank space, and I called it a Caesura, so it is. Um, and so, so you know, there's so many people to whom I owe 
um, parts of the book, the support that I needed to write the book. So not even just poets who were helpful in like reading sections of it, but also just friends who like are not into poetry, but are really into supporting me as a human being. The book wouldn't exist without that. So um, I did think it was important that I leave a little little blank space for the inevitable forgetting. Um, but I did want it to be um, as inclusive and, uh, you know, as wide reaching as possible, because I really do think I, I like what you mentioned there beforehand about the idea that poets or writers in general sometimes might feel a sense of pressure to say, well, I did this myself, like this is entirely an independent thing. But gosh, no, um, when I wasn't, you know, in community, that's when I stopped writing, you know, like the writing doesn't happen unless you're writing with others in some way it doesn't mean you have to literally be in a workshop or some kind of writing group but you know your your poems need to be in conversation with others and so um I am really grateful to you and to Amrak um for your kindness during the editing process as I got you several several drafts of that acknowledgement page which is really my greatest unfinished poem <laughs> and the very back of the book well you were in an like, no, I mean, you make it sound like you were asking us for a lot and it's literally just our job. It's not <laughs> like it's, it was not, you know, exorbitant or like they were not dozens of like, um, manuscripts going back and forth in, in part because, um, you know, it's what we do after we get home from our day job. So the balance, just finding the time, um, I think about, the hems of the day, like working in the early morning or working in the evening. And that's, that's how in just so many writers, like where we find time to write, to work, to take space for ourselves, um, if we can. Beautiful image to the hems of the day. I just wanted to point that out. Um, oh, I think it's really gorgeous. But also to what you're speaking, it reminds me of... Um, Wendy Trevino, who's another poet who I really love, and I went to one of her readings in the Bay when I was doing a book review of, of Cruel Fiction. She talks about like really not being precious with her writing, and that's part of why she does so many sonnets. Like I feel like I learned a lot about sonnet writing from her. We're very different poets stylistically in form and content. However, I do feel like reading her work made me better at sonnets which is a form that i love and certainly i'm nowhere near mastering but I, I love practicing within it and i think especially this year where my time has been so <laughs> so stretched thin as you know where i think i'm i'm trying to get better about how do i use the hems of the day and so i, I actually have been leaning more into sonnet form like when I go into to workshop I've, I so admire my other cohort members my other like absolutely brilliant poets um in my program we're bringing in like two three page poems and I'm like whoa that's incredible here's my sonnet <laughs> next week it might be a haiku <laughs> you know like don't don't hate me um but I might I might get really into haiku this semester um but like I think that you know, what you're saying is just so important because it's also like this idea of like poetry, um, poetry should be accessible for everyone, not just people who have the, you know, a lot of time. <laughs> um, and for many of us, um, you know, for many who have families who have, 
you know, really demanding jobs. And for me, I mean, this is uh, probably sacrilegious to say in a poetry podcast, but like teaching almost always is going to take priority over the poetry. It just really, <laughs> I don't like putting it in opposition. I don't like seeing it as a binary of like teaching versus poetry, but like my students, my students do come first. <laughs> so like, um, you know, I had a really brilliant professor um, who was like, well, you gotta, you gotta just, you know, sacrifice everything else. The writing comes first, like put your teaching aside. And it's like, I'll never be able to follow that advice. I'm so sorry. Like writing will never matter more to me than my students, than the relationships in my life and my friendships and family. <laughs> there are so many other things that I wouldn't say are necessarily more important than writing, but it's all within an interconnected web. Like I'm not a good teacher if I'm not taking time for myself as a creative artist. I'm not going to be a good friend um, if I'm not taking time for my poems. But at the same time, if I'm sacrificing friendships, which are sacred to me, community is sacred to me. If I'm sacrificing the work that I'm doing for my students, then the poetry stops mattering. You know, it really, <laughs> um, so I don't know how I got into this rabbit hole of uh, <laughs> discussing teaching and pedagogy yet again. Um, but yeah, we can, we can, we can, in fact, bring it back to uh, poetry. <laughs> no, that's incredible. And I'm so glad you brought that up because it's um, what that professor, it sounds like the male professor said, is so anti-caretaking. And like, I don't want a poetics that's anti-caretaking. Like what? Like that sounds like someone who could just take whatever thing they were supposed to care for and hand it to someone else in their life. Um, and I just, I, why would those things be in in conflict or opposition or, um, I mean, I really hand it to teachers, many of whom are, are women poets that I know who have generative space built into their um, workshops and, and their classes, because that is the 10 minutes of their day where they get to write a poem too. And I think that's absolutely brilliant and absolutely worthwhile. And to show, I always think it's so incredible when you do that with students, because you get to show them like, look what you can make in 10 minutes. So if you're waiting for the bus or you know, you're running to pick up food or whatever, like 10 minutes. Um, I think that's really inspiring. And I just like, it's so almightily privileged to be able to parse out your writing from the rest of your life or from caretaking or from, I just, it's, and it's like hilarious to me. I don't, mm, done with that. I love that you pointed out caretaking in particular, right? Because I think it's a practice that really gets demeaned because it has so historically been the work of women. Um, and so it's frustrating to me because it's everyone's work. And like, what more vital work could any of us be doing than taking care of each other? Like, I don't think that there's anything more important um, you know, and, and certainly I, I don't want to impose that idea on others, but it's also just like, my gosh, again, it goes back to the idea of odes and gratitude. Like we owe, what do we owe each other? Everything, you know, we owe each other everything. Um, from the moment we're born, there are hands that care for us, you know, and so 
Um, when I when I hear about writing kind of put aside as this like separate practice, I love the way that you were talking about it just now, as if it's like not connected to the to the care work that we do for others. And also, you know, um, I think you and I both struggle with this, the care work that we have to do for ourselves, right? <laughs> um, the care work of, you know, taking care of our own hearts, of our own bodies, right? That too, like that, to, the idea of separating that from writing is really bizarre to me. <laughs> Something that I like wholeheartedly reject. Um, and so, yeah, I think, you know, it's interesting looking at, I was looking the other day um, because Rachel Edelman, amazing press mate for those of you who are tuning in, um, Rachel's book is also out with River River, Dare Memphis, um, came out at the same time as mine. So we're like twin press mates. Um, and so I was looking at her bio for the Blue Stockings reading that we have coming up in February. Um, and we both kind of mentioned like the practice of like, nourishing and nurturing like through teaching um within our bios and i think it's it's so important because again i think that i think that those practices of nurturing others sometimes get seen as unimportant or i don't know like fluff when it's like that's vital <laughs> that is what you know what the world depends on and i think you know if we if any human, regardless of gender, closes themselves to that work because it is seen as whatever, feminine work, which is ridiculous, because again, as human beings, we depend on caring for each other. So like, I think it's just, I don't know, it's such an important part of my writing practice to think about what is this poem doing in terms of its own caretaking? What is the poem taking care of? For me, poems take care of things by paying attention right by witnessing um we can't ignore like I think like that's the thing too that's happening today as well like that that's such a struggle because we're being inundated by our social media feeds and um but I think also we can't let ourselves be desensitized we have to be able to look at violence we have to be able to look at tragedy we have to be able to look at harm um and not turn away and to turn actively into the practice of caretaking. Again, I don't want to go. <laughs> I don't want to go down a super philosophical uh, rabbit hole, but um, that is that is to me part of the work of what poetry should be doing is, is paying attention. Hundred percent, yeah. That that's really, and I think I love the language of attention, um, and I think it's it's more helpful than some of the other you know, looking or I don't know, there are other metaphors out there, but attention just seems like such a rich place. Um, and the, let me look again, kind of impulse, um, like, Oh, I could be wrong in how I am and how I am looking and how I'm paying attention. Um, yeah, so much of that. Carla, I thank you so much for being here tonight with me on, uh, Friday night. Um <laughs> really wonderful Friday night for me. This is the uh, talking about poems on a Friday night is the dream. That's how I want all my Friday nights to be. <laughs> I love seeing Moonshadow in the background making biscuits. I was like, I was like, yes, get it. Such Moonshadow. a participant in this conversation, including leaving as soon as i read the opening poem he was here for a whole prelude to the podcast i read a poem and he's like not for me <laughs> just keeps the room 
That's amazing. That's amazing. It is a good, I do think reading to your pets um, and reading to children is like a good, I don't know. There's something interesting that happens there. Um, Like when my kids were little, if I would read them a poem, they would pay attention if there were nouns and if it was too abstract, they just checked out. So I was like, you know what? That's really fair. <laughs> you have have children as the as the first critics. Children and Moonshadow, very discerning. <laughs> and they got taste. <laughs> Carla, is there a poem you'd like to close us with tonight? Oh, yes. <laughs> I think, um, well, so much of our conversation has gone back to teaching and being in the classroom. So I kind of... I was discussing this poem with you before as the poem that I feel like I've been I've been wanting to write for years. And then finally, this was in the spring of 2022. I was still working at my former high school in Newark. I had graduated from as a student in 2008. And then I was back working there. Um, had been there for a couple of years. And I wrote this during one of my prep periods. So those very... <laughs> Um, two short periods, uh, I should say. I wish that teachers had more time to prep during the day. Um, but during one of those sacred periods of time where I was supposed to be grading and wasn't, um, and I was writing this instead. And I, you know, I really, I write so many poems for my students. The dream for me, really, this is the nerdy, one of the nerdiest dreams. I have many nerdy dreams, but one of them is that I'll have high school students close read my poems just absolute dream so I write so many poems for thinking about high school students as my audience um and this was really a poem that was not just for my students but my students really in a very real way were like co-authors of this poem because I am taking things that they said to me almost pretty much verbatim and putting it into this very long run-on sentence of a poem um and this was published in EcoTheo, um, which is such a beautiful um, literary magazine. I'm super grateful for. So I'll go right into the poem. Today, my students tell me. Today, my students tell me that I look like someone who never drives a car. That I look like I am someone who takes a train everywhere. And I love that they see me like this, the same way that I love that one day a student asks me, do you buy your clothes on englishteacher.com? When the truth is, I would if such a place existed. Another day, a student tells me that I seem like the kind of person who is good at tending plants that I seem exactly like someone who would care for dying plants and maybe even heal them. Only I am the one adding maybe because they said it with such conviction. And another student agreed with them like this was simple and true. And I laughed, told them they were wrong, that I wish I were more like my grandmother who was in fact a tender of gardens and all green things. And what I don't tell my students is that I am so bad at taking care of anything, including myself. I don't tell them that their words, their kindness, 
unprovoked by anything. Like when a student told me I smelled like waffles and they wanted me to know this was a compliment. This tenderness, even just this shared nodding of heads, that it takes care of me every day, that it keeps me like a garden. Thank you, Han. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Carla. And in our listening notes, we're going to have links to a geography that does not hurt us and to Carla's website where you can read more of her beautiful work. So please um, go click some links and um, find some more of, of Carla's beautiful poetry to read. And um, before we go, Carla, this is just me abusing the fact that I have a podcast. Um, <laughs> Carla, what is your horoscope sign? Do I know your zodiac sign? Oh my goodness. I love it when poets ask me this because I really, I wouldn't know like my whole star chart if it weren't for poets. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I I believe, wait, and you are a Taurus? Yeah. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. I think we we have. Yeah. So I I can I can tell you the whole deal. I am a Virgo sun, a okay. Taurus rising, and a Gemini moon. Uh-huh. Um. And okay. yeah, I am apparently a textbook case of all of those. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I think the Virgo sun really um comes out in other other times in my life where I'm like more organized and meticulous. I think really the Taurus rising, the the need mm. for coziness and wrapping myself in blankets has been the predominant feature of this current school year. Um, and apparently Gemini moons are, you know, um, what is it like super anxious overthinkers, you know, so um, that's, uh, that's my biography right there. Oh my <laughs> well, yeah, your students were definitely picking up on that earth sign energy that <laughs> double, you know, that's, I'm a Taurus sun, Taurus moon, Gemini Ooh. rising. So, oh, whoa, um, we got some congruency going did, on there between, oh, did. nice. We got to do, that's what River River needs to do at AWP. I think we all mm. need to <laughs> figure out, do a star chart bingo or some kind of like connective web and see that uh, amongst mm-hmm. amongst each other. I'd be super curious. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Um, I kind of, I kind of want to see what Amarak's feelings <laughs> on Zodiac <laughs> <laughs> Yes, well... Amorak is the same zodiac as Emily Dickinson, a Sagittarius. Whoa. So okay, I very know. cool, very I know. cool. And I adore fire See? signs, and I also love okay. Gemini's to death. So, yeah, it's just good times all around. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Carla. Thank you so much, Han, and, and thank you, listeners. Um, I hope you enjoy the book. 